Let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, please, through your word, that we might come to know Christ, our Saviour and our Lord, all the better. And uh, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please allow me to introduce you to my cousin. Thank you. Actually, he's my second cousin. Uh, His name is Robert Aronson. Uh, Robert is the son of David Aronson. David is my mother's first cousin. Is David coming up? There he is, David. And uh, David is uh, the son of Abraham Aronson, Uncle Up, as we called him. So this is Robert's grandfather, Abraham Aronson, my grandfather's brother. So Robert is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And uh, apart from being a beautiful sermon illustration, that is a highly significant thing for Robert. It very much defines his place and his purpose in life. Thanks, Sonny. Uh, let, let me explain the story and why Robert's family tree is so significant for him. It all started back in 1881. Robert's and my great-grandfather, a man by the name of Leon, uh, decided to start, to start an antique business, Aronson Antiquaires, in the Dutch city of Arnhem. Leon's son, who was also called David, this is Robert's and my great-grandfather, Uh, joined him in the business uh, just before 1900. And in 1900, David moved the business to Amsterdam, where it currently is. And the business became quite prosperous and quite renowned, not only uh, in Amsterdam and Holland, but uh, through Europe. Uh, During World War II, the Nazis took over the shop, they stole all the goods, and they murdered David and practically all of his family. David died in Auschwitz. Uh, Nico, my grandfather just managed to escape. He happened to be in the backyard while his family was taken and his brother, Abraham, um, hid in an attic uh, with uh, his uh, fiancée and her family. So my grandfather, Nico, and Robert's grandfather, uh, Abraham, were the only survivors of the Holocaust from our family. And uh, after the war together, they restarted the antique shop. Robert writes in his website that they did so with nothing except experience and determination. After a while, my grandfather decided to leave Holland. He came as a refugee to Australia. But uh, Uncle Up stayed in Amsterdam. Uh, In 1967, Abraham's son, also called David, joined the business. In 1969, they moved to their current address. And then just before Abraham's death in 1990, this is where it it gets significant, Robert also decided to join the business. So this is just uh, uh, around about 1989, Robert decided to join the business. So he went uh, to London and worked in Sotheby's for for a couple of years and then he came back to Amsterdam and worked together with his dad, David. Uh, David passed away in 2007 and Robert took over the business. Aronson Antiques continues to be a general antiques dealer of a fair bit of fame in Europe but under the influence of first David and now Robert they've come to specialise in 17th and 18th century Dutch Delft ware. Dutch Delftware is a kind of pottery. It's kind of blue pottery, very detailed painting. Probably nobody here uh, knows a whole heap about it, as I don't, but it's a kind of a pottery. Uh, But Robert has devoted his entire life to the study of Dutch Delftware and to the buying and selling of Dutch Delftware. He's written many scholarly articles on the subject, and today he is widely acknowledged as the world's top dealer in Dutch Delftware. So that's... A bit of history on my cousin, Robert Aronson, master of Dutch Delftware, son of David, 
son of Abraham. Interesting, don't you think, how his family history has shaped him. Uh, not only, I mean, I, I compare it with my life, and uh, here I am in Australia, there he is in Amsterdam. It's got to do with his family history. It, his family history has made him the person that he is today. His family history has given him the role in life that he has today. It's kind of, been, it's kind of set his mission in life for him. Well, this morning we come to this first talk in our series on the Gospel of Matthew, and we're introduced to another son of David, son of Abraham. Another man whose family history profoundly shaped who he is. Another man whose family history actually shows us his very role, his, his very mission in life. We're introduced to this man in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus... Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Quite similar to Robert's history in some ways, at least superficially, isn't it? Son of David, son of Abraham. Uh, only Jesus isn't described as a master of Dutch Delftware, you'll be pleased to know. Jesus is described as the Christ. Uh, now this word Christ, it's a Greek word, it translates a Hebrew word that sounds something like Messiah, and it means someone who's been anointed, someone who's had oil poured on their head. And what that often or usually means in the Old Testament is they have their, the oil put on their head to set them apart as king. Okay, so here's Jesus, the Christ. Now, as we progress through this genealogy, we see that in fact uh, David wasn't Jesus' father at all and Abraham wasn't his grandfather. No, no. What Matthew's doing, he's pointing them out as significant forebears in what is actually a very, very long family history. So we start with Abraham. In fact, this is 1,800 years before Jesus. Uh, so it takes us back to around 1,800 BC. And in the first section of the genealogy, Matthew takes us through from 1,800 BC through until we get to David. Now, David's around about 1,000 BC. Um, you'll notice Matthew describes him as King David. Um, but uh, on the way, through this 800 years, 800 BC to 1000 BC, Matthew points out a number of relatives of Jesus. Uh, there are 14, if you count both Abraham and David on either end. So reading from verse 2. From verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Abraham to David, 800 years. Uh, next section, Matthew takes us from King David, so about 1000 BC, through until what he calls the Exile. Uh, that's referring to the time when the country of, of Judah was defeated and taken into exile by the Babylonian Empire. And historically, it's around about 600 BC. It happens over a bit of a period, through to 586, but about, around about 600 BC. So this time, um, this period is actually much shorter, isn't it? So we went 1800 to 1000, 800 years. Now we're going 1000 to 600, so it's 400 years this time. Uh, again, Matthew points out some relatives along the way. He takes us through the Old Testament line of kings from David to Jeconiah 
And this time, if you leave out David at the beginning, but include Jeconiah at the end, again, you make 14 relatives. Halfway through verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Okay, we've got 1,800 to 1,000, then 1,000 to 600. Now, in this final section of the genealogy, Matthew takes us from uh, the exile, about 600, right through until the birth of Jesus, which is, I guess, around about zero, isn't it? It's probably about 6 BC. So this time we've got uh, a 600-year period, kind of splitting the difference between the first two, 800, 400, 600. And again, what you need to do is you need to count both Jeconiah and Jesus on either end to end up with 14 relatives again. And notice when we get there, uh, whose genealogy this is. This is the genealogy of Joseph, who's the husband of Jesus' mum. And notice also again that Jesus is called Christ. Reading from verse 12. Verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, that is of Mary, was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Matthew finishes up by summing up the significant parts of this genealogy in verse 17. Here's what he wants us to get. He says the key players are Abraham, David and Jesus the Christ and he wants to slip in there the exile as well as being very significant. And he says the whole structure of my history, the whole way I've told you this story, the whole way I've, I've given you this history demonstrates what is significant for you. It's balanced into these three 14 generation blocks, Abraham, David, exile, Christ. Verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Okay, so there's Matthew's introduction, a family tree of Jesus. Now, as I say, your family tree can be really important in shaping your whole role and purpose in life. That's very often true before the Industrial Revolution. I mean, now people do whatever they want, pretty much, just depends on their HSC, but, but back before the Industrial Revolution, the vast majority of boys did what their dad did, and, and, and his, uh, their dad did what his dad did. You didn't move around in society. Your family tree shaped who you were and what you did. Uh, very common before the Industrial Revolution, as I say, still true in some cases, I know it's still true in some cases in our church, certainly endemic, uh, well common, shall we call it, in my family. Uh, my cousin Robert is an example. Uh, even here in Australia, when my grandfather Nico came out, um, he started Aronson Antiques out here, followed by his son Charles. My other grandfather, Ron, uh, started a business called Reed Industries. And uh, my dad followed in his footsteps. And my brother and my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law have all followed in my dad's footsteps. 
And almost certainly I would have followed in those footsteps as well if I hadn't turned out to be a religious nutter and ended up here. Uh, maybe I'll be redeemed in my dad's and family's eyes if one of my sons goes into the business. But uh, anyway, the point is that their family history shapes the whole role that they take in life, sets out their mission in life. That is certainly true for Jesus here. This family history, incredibly significant, it sets out the whole purpose of the life of Jesus. But before I show you that, before we start thinking about it, I think there are just a number of questions that we need to discuss because there are all sorts of problems that people have with this genealogy. Let me just run through some problems that people have with the genealogy. First, uh, notice that this is the genealogy of Joseph, the husband of Jesus' mum, but not the father of Jesus. That seems like a problem, doesn't it? It seems pretty weird. In some people's mind, it is a problem. Why did, why did we get the whole genealogy in the first place? Um, not just a problem in our minds, it's a problem in Matthew's mind as well, and next week we'll see how he deals with it. Don't want to steal my own thunder from next week but basically what happens is Joseph names Jesus thus he legally adopts Jesus and so the family tree becomes his legal family tree more of that next week a second problem a second problem for some people is the way that this genealogy relates to the genealogy in Luke's gospel uh, if you compare the two of them they are quite dissimilar uh, whole sections basically have no names in common even to the point of Joseph having a different father. All kinds of possible explanations, hard to know exactly what's going on, why these two genealogies are so different. Most commentators seem to think that Matthew's Gospel is focusing on the, the royal heritage of Jesus, where Luke's Gospel is a more of a strict biological genealogy. Look, it's hard to tell. I'm not sure that I find that satisfactory myself. There are lots of other possible explanations. Can I encourage you? Uh, Don Carson's commentary is very helpful at uh, looking at different explanations. Unfortunately, ultimately, we just don't know what, why the two are different. Third issue. A third issue is the women Matthew includes in this genealogy. Uh, that's not unusual in itself. Many of the genealogies in the Old Testament include some women. Many, uh, many genealogies in ancient literature include some women. But the interesting thing here is the kind of women that Matthew chooses to include. So verse 3, you've got Tamar. Let me tell you about Tamar. Uh, the most famous thing she did was pretend to be a prostitute so she could have sex with her father-in-law. That's how she had the children in this genealogy. Interesting stuff. Uh, Rahab in verse 5. If Matthew is referring to Rahab in the Bible, which he may or may not be, again we're dealing with a Gentile, non-Jewish prostitute. Uh, verse 5, you've got Ruth as well, also a Gentile, not Jewish. She's a Moabitess. Uh, verse 6, you've got, he, he won't even name who this woman is. She's Uriah's wife. You know who she is? This is Bathsheba. Was she famous for having adulterous sexual affair with King David so that she had King Solomon? Some pretty shady characters here in this family tree. Interesting group, to say the very least. Hard to know what Matthew was thinking in putting them all in. Some people get very worried about it, like it's kind of polluting the family tree of Holy Jesus or something like that. I gotta say, I kinda like it myself. What I like about it is just the inclusion of sinners and Gentiles. I reckon Matthew might be giving us a clue about the kind of people Jesus came to save. Sinners, ultimately Gentiles. And I think also he's, he's giving us a clue that we're dealing with like, you can't choose your family, can you? We've got a real 
human here in Jesus, with all of the skeletons in the closet that we all have, someone who can, who can relate to us. Another problem. Uh, another problem for some people is the way Matthew seems to leave people out of this genealogy. So that first section, Matthew gives 14 generations to cover 800 years. Uh, if that is a strict 21st century, historical, chronological, statistical, give everybody kind of a genealogy, then we have to assume that everyone is having children at the age of 60. Doesn't seem like that's the way it works. Pretty sure that Matthew is leaving out a whole heap of generations, maybe half the generations in this first 800 years. Uh, Maybe that's just because he hasn't got any information. This is all the information he's got. Maybe there's some other reason. My suspicion is that he's being very deliberate in balancing it out into 14, 14, 14, um, so that we get the point of the genealogy. Uh, We know that uh, in the second section he doesn't include all the kings. Uh, Just from looking in the Old Testament, you can see that he's left out kings Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, a couple of others as well. Again, it's probably to get us to the three 14s, because Matthew wants us, to, he wants us to get something out of this genealogy, not a list of names, but he wants us to focus on the significant features. Abraham, David, exile, Christ. One more problem. Uh, one more problem some people have, particularly maths teachers, is that there aren't in fact three 14s at all. Uh, it actually goes 14, 14, 13. You have to kind of fudge it and count Jeconiah twice to get three 14s. Some people, as I say, especially maths teachers, have a real problem with that. I assume Matthew could count. Uh, It obviously wasn't a big deal for him. He's not trying to give us a maths lecture. He's trying to make a point, again, trying to focus our attention on the key aspects of the genealogy. Abraham, David, exile, Jesus. Now, just as a little bit of an aside, uh, with a lot of these problems, I think part of the solution is for us to realise what we're dealing with here. We need to realise what kind of literature this is. This is not a 21st century history of Jesus. Uh, Matthew is not doing the things that we necessarily consider important in a history. He doesn't uh, doesn't boldly recount facts and statistics necessarily. He's not necessarily aiming for completeness or chronology. Uh, In fact, if you think about it, it's crazy to complain that Matthew doesn't write a 21st century history. This is a gospel. It is... uh, a form of literature that was entirely unique in its time and continues to be entirely unique. It's a 2,000-year-old document that was produced because of a unique and amazing event in history, the coming of Jesus. And what Matthew is doing, he's gathering historical facts, he's gathering his sources together, and he's structuring them, not just to give us a history of Jesus, but to make a theological point. He doesn't just want to inform us although he does want to inform us, he wants us to get who Jesus is and he wants us to understand what Jesus is on about, but it's not just inform us, he wants to change us. He wants us to put our trust in Jesus when we know how magnificent it is and how magnificent what he has done is. Now, before you all stone me as a liberal, I trust that Matthew is God's word. I trust that it teaches us the truth about Jesus. I trust that it teaches us the truth about in Jesus in such a way that we can be made wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. I trust that it teaches us the truth about Jesus in such a way that we can be taught and rebuked and corrected and trained in righteousness 
so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I don't think it contains error in terms of what it is trying to do. But I think if we want to try to apply 21st century historical method to Matthew's gospel, we're going to be disappointed. And realistically, it makes no literary sense for us to do it. It's like reading a telephone book and complaining that it's a terrible story. Of course it's a terrible story. It's a telephone book. Okay, to say uh, a 2,000-year-old document is not modern history, of course it's not modern history. You're out of date by 2,000 years. Okay. Let's put the problems aside and get to the point. What is Matthew trying to teach us here with this genealogy? He's pretty clear about it, isn't he? Verse 1, he's already told us. Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verses 2 to 16, the whole genealogy is structured around Abraham, David, exile, Jesus. And just in case we didn't get the point, this is Matthew for dummies as well as church for dummies, apparently. Matthew tells us again in verse 17, it's all about who? Abraham, David, exile, and Jesus the Christ. He's making it all pretty clear, isn't it? But what is he talking about? What does it all mean? Why is that so significant? What's the point of Abraham, David, exile, Jesus? To answer that question, to answer that question, we need to do a bit of Old Testament research. Okay, so stay with me. Some Old Testament research. First, Abraham. What is so significant about Abraham? If I, if I have to put it in one word, I would say that Abraham is the blesser. The blesser. See, way, way back in the beginning, God makes Adam and Eve. They are God's blessed people, his special people. They're, they're, they're in God's special land, the Garden of Eden, and they're enjoying the blessing of God. But as you know, Adam and Eve sin, they disobey God, and they are cursed and thrown out of the Garden of Eden. And mankind comes under the curse of God and it just gets worse and worse as you read Genesis until he destroys the lot with the flood in the time of Noah. But then comes Abraham, God calls Abraham and he makes him promises that, that bring us back to Eden. He says, Abraham, it's your family that'll be my special people, a great nation. He says, it's your family that'll live in my special land. It's your family that I'm going to bless and through your family, I'm going to bless the whole world back to Eden. There on your outline from Genesis chapter 12. You see where I am now, right hand side, Genesis chapter 12. Incredibly famous promise. Uh, if you're a Bible learner, Learn these verses off by heart. Really important. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham is the blesser. Through Abraham, God promises to restore humanity to, to, the, to the created blessings of Eden, God's people in God's special land under his blessing. Ultimately, the prophets will tell us this is going to happen in a new heaven and new earth when God will bless his people again. There's the significance of Abraham. He's the blesser. What about David? What's the significance of David? If I have to put it into one word, I'd say that David is the king. The king. David is the king of God's people, Israel. He, he shepherds them. He gives them safety and security and protection in the promised land. But more than that, 
More than that, God also makes an incredible promise to David. Uh, God promises David that one of his descendants will be the eternal king of God's people, the king in, in God's kingdom. Uh, this, this descendant comes to be known as the Christ. And uh, uh, here he is, the, the, the promised, anointed king from the line of David. That's, that's God's promise to David on your outline there from 2 Samuel. From 2 Samuel, again, if you're a Bible learner, these are incredibly significant verses to learn. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you who come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who built a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Through David, God promises an eternal king for his people to rule, protect, shepherd them in the kingdom of God. David is... The king, the blesser, the king. What's next? The exile. The exile, what's the significance of the exile? Again, if I have to put it in one word, I'd say that the exile is the challenge. It's the challenge to God's promises. God has promised through Abraham... My people will be in my special land. I'll bless them. The world will be blessed. It's going to be back to Eden. God has promised through David, I'm going to rule and protect and shepherd these people. The kingdom of Israel will become the kingdom of God. The problem is Israel are hopeless. They are sinful. They're just like Adam and Eve. They're just like you and me. They keep on disobeying God. Did you see it in our second reading? They just get worse and worse and worse. And God sends prophets to tell them and they hate the prophets and they get worse and worse. And so as we saw in our other reading, God sent them into exile, away from his special land, away from his blessing, with no king to rule over them. Blesser, the king, the challenge. And that's where Jesus comes in. Can you see it all falling into place? Can you see how this sets up not only who Jesus is, but, but exactly what he's come to do? This is the background into which Jesus arrives. This is how his family tree reveals his purpose in life. God has promised to bless his people. God has promised to rule and protect his people. But since the exile, it's not happening. Israel are not safe. They are not blessed in the promised land. Israel have no king. Instead, they're a tiny, oppressed part of the Roman Empire. And it's into this scene, into this background, into this family history that who comes? Jesus, the Christ. Who is he? He's the promised blesser in the line of Abraham. Who is he? He's the promised king in the line of David. Who is he? He's the one who must overcome the challenge of exile and sin and win God's people back into his blessed kingdom. Can you see the significance of this genealogy? Can you see the, the, the mission that Jesus' family history has set for him? Can you see how this genealogy reveals who Jesus is and what he has to do? It is a bit like my cousin, isn't it? Robert, son of David, son of Abraham. His family destiny, his family history has determined his destiny. He's, he's destined to become a leader in antique Dutch Delftware. <laughs> so too with Jesus. His family history has determined his destiny. He is destined, what's he destined to do? To bring blessing and kingship to God's exiled people. He is destined to bring blessing and kingship to God's exiled people. This is genius stuff, don't you reckon? This is fascinating. 
you, you can see how the whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus and enriching our understanding of who he is and what he, what he came to do. But more than this, is more than just interesting, this is the gospel right here, isn't it? I mean, I was so encouraged a couple of years ago when we preached through uh, uh, 1 Chronicles, chapters 1 to 9, all those genealogies, and Diana became a Christian. I mean, how magnificent. And then to hear from Jimmy this morning that uh, he became a Christian through reading this genealogy, fair enough. The gospel is right here. It's all here in this family tree. Friends, can you see? Jesus can overcome the challenge of your sin. Jesus can, can take you, an, an alienated, exiled enemy of God, and bring you into the blessed, eternal kingdom of God. Friends, this Jesus is not just a fascinating historical figure. This man holds your eternal destiny in his hands. He can overcome our sin and exile. He can bring us blessing. He can be our king. Friend, don't just be interested by Jesus, the, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As we, as we walk with him today and, and through this year, entrust your life to him. Allow him to be your blesser who brings you the blessing of God. Allow him to be your king, who brings you into the kingdom of God. Ask him to be your king and saviour, this Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. Let's pray. Father and our God, we thank and praise you for our wonderful, magnificent Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to bring us your promised blessing and rule despite our sin and curse and exile from you. We thank you for this rich history into which he has come and we thank you that he is exactly the king and saviour who we need. We pray for everyone who enters this building and, uh, and, and hears your word this year that they might come to know Christ as their king and saviour and find your wonderful blessing and rule forever. And we pray it in Jesus' name.